Well, good morning. If thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, um, we're glad you're here. As an undergraduate student, my dad had put the idea in my mind that maybe a MBA, Master's of Administration, would be good to put together with my chemical engineering degree. And so I would go, they would have these seminars when I was at Texas A&M about the MBA and what to do and how to get in and so forth. Well, in this particular one, um, there was a man speaking and kind of the three elite programs at that time were Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania. And this guy had gone to Stanford and he had graduated from the University of Houston with a 2.8 grade point. And I thought, how in the world did you get into Stanford with a 2.8? We had worked five years and then he gave us his GMAT score, Graduate Management Aptitude Test, and the air kind of went out of the room. Oh, okay. I mean, his score was just off the charts. But he quickly corrected us. He said, you know, that score did not get me in. What that score got me was an interview to convince the committee at Stanford that I would be a, a graduate that would reflect well on them. See, Stanford and Harvard and Wharton, they want graduates who do well. So they could say when it comes to ranking, look at our people, look what they've done. He said, it's a very symbiotic relationship. As prospective students, we want to get in because it says to recruiters, look, we got into these schools. Those schools are looking for people who will represent them well, that they can keep their ranking. Well, we serve a guy who wants us to go forward and move his name and reputation forward. And, and when he comes to determining what, what he's looking for, who those people are that might be on his team, he's not looking at a grade point, and he's not looking at a GMAT score, and he's not even talking about an interview. But there's a characteristic. It's something he wants for people on his team. So if you got a Bible, if you'd open it to... First um, Samuel 16. We're going to go all the way through this chapter and we're going to wrestle with the question, what's God looking for on his team? What's God looking for on his team? If you haven't been with us, book of First and Second Samuel is the transition of Israel from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. Uh, God has brought them into the promised land to bless them and he wants them to take his name and reputation forward, but they've got this habit of chasing after other gods. And because of that, God has... At times, removed his hedge of protection, and they, they've, they've been occupied. And the people have thought, you know, what we really need to be free of this is a king. We need a king like everybody else has got a king. And God tries to say, no, that's really a bad idea, but no, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. Okay, we're going to give you your king, and you're going to see in the end the king you really need is me. So that first king is anointed is Saul. And the wording is real, real exact. Saul, you're a prince, you're a ruler you're not a king per se, because you will operate under my authority. Well, Saul doesn't get that. First Samuel 13, he's pulled the weight to offer sacrifice. He'd go ahead and offer his own. First Samuel 15, he's told to carry out judgment. He doesn't do that. He saved some of the best. And at that point, God says, you know what? I'm moving on. I need a king who will listen to me. And so we're now in the process. We're going to see the moving on. It's going to get real, real, real here in First Samuel 16. So here we go. So it says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel is grieving over God's judgment. Make no mistake. God said, enough, I'm moving on. It's not something he's rejoicing in. It's not something he's celebrating. And we understand that people who reject God, God will reject them. But this is something we always ought to grieve over. Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Here's what I want you to do, Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have selected a king for myself among his sons. The oil is going to be symbolic 
of God's favor, of God's anointing. And we'll talk about what that looks like here in about 12 verses. Samuel's got a concern, verse 2. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. But Samuel said, how can I go when Saul, sitting king, hears of it? He will kill me. Yeah, I don't want you anointing another king while I'm king. I, I'm going I'm to. And the Lord said, hey, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So I'm going to give you cover here. You shall invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him the one whom I designate to you. So, verse 4, Samuel goes. Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to him, trembling to meet him, and said, Do you come in peace? Well, why would they ask this question? Well, last time we met Samuel, he, he carried out judgment on the Amalekite king, Agak. So Samuel represents God, and a lot of times it's a word of encouragement, a word of strength, but it, it can also be God's justice, God's judgment. So, so Samuel, what's your business here? He said, In peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves. And come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So there's the cover. There's the cover. So here we go. Verse 6. When they entered, he, Samuel, thought, Eliab, he looked at Eliab and thought, ah, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Remember when Saul was chosen king, remember he was more handsome than all. He was a head taller than everybody. And, and, and Samuel takes a look and thinks, yeah, that's, that's got to be the guy. But, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. When it comes to picking a king, I ain't looking at outward appearance. That's not a screen for me. I think we need, as a culture, we need to take a step back, because if ever there's a culture that's enamored with appearance, it is ours. And we judge someone of value by the way they look. Oh, I could give all kinds of examples. But I've got a little uh, news app on my phone, so I will push that thing, and it's got all kinds of different sources on it. One of the things that's interesting to me is news sources, they give the news, will include an interview with a beautiful person, a movie star, an actress, and, and I think, wait, 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 this has nothing to do with your mission. It has nothing to do with the economy. It has nothing to do with the elections. It has nothing to do with the war. This is, why are you doing this? Why are you putting this on your news source? Because it gets clicks. That's why. And they make money on clicks. Never mind that it really doesn't fit with what you're doing. They understand we're a culture enamored with the beautiful people. So they put an interview, and that will get clicks. And they were consumed with physical appearance. And God says that's a bad way to evaluate people. As we judge and evaluate people, how are we doing it? Outward appearance? We're looking at character. We're looking at the heart. Because God is looking at the heart. Second part of verse 7. For God sees, not as man sees. For God looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yeah, I'm picking a king here. He's going to be my leader. And this is my vehicle where I'm going to make myself known. Israel is going to be my vehicle for making myself known. And that was the case until Jesus came and he moved on to the church. I ain't concerned about how he looks. I'm concerned about his heart. So we're asking this question, who's God looking for on his team? He's looking for people whose heart aligns with his heart. Their heart aligns with his heart. Now, in the Bible, the heart is the place from which we live life. 
Our values are there. Our priorities are there. It's where we make decisions out of our heart. So in a sense, God's saying, I want folks whose values and priorities align with mine. Now, I don't know about you, but I got some values and priorities that are right in line with God. Others, not so much. And God said, I, 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 Andy, I'm going to need to work on that. You're going to have to submit to me because I'm going to mold and I'm going to change and I'm going to shape your values, your priorities to match mine. Are you in? Are you willing to allow God to say what seems important to you needs to become less important and what doesn't seem to matter to you needs to become more important? This plays out all kinds of ways in my life. You've heard me talk. You know, I'm wigged about security and I wanted a job and blah, 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 blah. And so God called me on staff with Campus Crusade. I had to raise my support and that was one issue. But second year I'm on, it's the fall of 85. We're picking summer assignments for the summer of 86. And I choose to go to Istanbul, Turkey. There's a bunch of people I know in Colorado who are going, so I sign up. Well, I don't know if you remember the politics of that, but all of a sudden there seem start to be bombings in the uh, airport in Rome and the airport in Athens and a couple others. And the U.S. tracks this back to Libya in April of 86. We bomb Libya, Muammar Gaddafi. The whole Middle East is inflamed against the United States. Death to the great Satan. I think, swell, I'm going to Istanbul. And I begin to wrestle with, do I really want, is this? And I had to come to terms with, God, are you sorry? Is my security in you or not? Now, I will tell you the threat. I ended up going, the threat was far, far, far more perceived than real. It was no, nothing being over there. But at the time, it's like, Andy, I, I want your trust fully in me. I want your heart, my, your life is in my hands. I don't know what kind of work God's going to do in your life. Maybe it has to do with generosity. We're, we're a culture that, man, we, we, me, 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 and, and talks about Jesus becoming poor for our sake so we could become rich. That, that's a, a value that, that God wants to change. Your money is not your money. It's God's money. And yeah, you need money to live, but you, you need to be. Well, I don't do that. Well, maybe God wants to do work there. God values people. And you got some people you value and others you don't because of the way they look. And, and, and it comes down to you. You know how those rich folk are, don't you? You know how those poor folk are, don't you? I mean, you don't do the rich folk. You don't do the poor folk. You know how the black folks are, the white folks are, the Hispanics, the Asians, the Middle Easterners. God said, let me tell you about all those folk created in my image. Every one of them worth me going to the cross. We don't have the right to pick and choose because of the way they look. That might be a value God wants to do in your life. Change. Is, does God have carte blanche in your life to begin to shape your heart to match his heart? Your, his values become your values. We go back to our passage. We still don't have a king. It's, verse 8 says, Then Jesse called Abdenoth, and made him pass before Samuel. He said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Okay. Verse 9. Then next Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Great. How are we doing? Verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I risk this 
thing to come and pick a king and, and we're going through son after son after son and Lord, you, there's nobody? Did, did I not hear right? Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are, are, are these all the children? They said, oh, 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 there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Now you need to understand the socioeconomic ladder. A, a, a shepherd was about as low as you go. You don't, you don't want the shepherd, do you? Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So, verse 12. So he sent and brought him. Now he's ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel obeys. It says, then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Sam David from that day. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. God's got his man. It's the shepherd boy. And he's going to empower him with his spirit. And we talked about God has looked at David's heart and said, you're the man. Earlier when First Samuel 13, um, God told Saul, I'm rejecting you. He said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. First Samuel 13, 14. David is that man. Now, David happens to have beautiful eyes and handsome in appearance. So though God looks at the heart, he will still use people like that. And that, my friends, is good news for our student pastor, Nate Gotchel. It's good news. How does God prepare David? He gives him his spirit. In the Old Testament, the spirit of God was given specifically to people for specific tasks. In the New Testament with Jesus, with the Pentecost, the spirit of God is poured out on every believer. And that's God's anointing that we could represent him. Jesus, before he was leaving, said to the disciples, where I'm going, you can't go. But he said, uh, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, dude, you're going to the cross. You're going to be crucified. You'll rise on Sunday. You'll have 40 days. You're ascending into heaven. How can you say, I will not leave you? Because the Holy Spirit is going to manifest me. He even said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Well, you're the son of God. Take it on humor. Why would you say that? Because when Jesus was on earth, his presence was limited to where he was. With the Holy Spirit, he can be anywhere. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that, that fits with what we talked about last week. The way we obey God shows how much we value him. But the, and the next thing he said, but I'll give you helper. See, he's going to manifest Jesus. And you and I are going to see manifest Jesus. And we're going to think, oh, okay. Uh, give, given who Jesus is, I, I can follow. Jesus said, the, the, the Spirit uh, will guide you into all truth. The question is, when he guides you, are you willing to follow? So the Spirit of God is going to convict the world of sin. When you and I are convicted of sin, will we turn? Or not. Uh, Tony Evans is a pastor out of Dallas. I love listening to him and two minutes with Tony. And he got done and, and they said, uh, somebody has compiled Tony Evans' illustrations and they made it available for 20 bucks. And I was driving to work and the first thing I did was order that Hummer because every preacher loves illustrations. So what I'm about to share here in my last one is from Tony Evans. You and I are not made to live underwater. So to go down deep, we, we just can't do that unless we get some equipment, right? We get a 
We get a snorkel and we get a tank and we get a thing that goes to our mouth. And then, then we can do something we otherwise couldn't do, right? We, we can stay down there a long time. Without a tank, I mean, we can go down 30 seconds from a minute, we've got to come up. It's, it's not a very good experience. But if we stay connected to our oxygen tank, well, we, we can stay down there quite a while. And we can do something that we otherwise couldn't do. Do you understand that is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine? We're empowered to live in a way we otherwise couldn't live. But we need to stay connected. What specifically? Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. We can live out Jesus with his values and who he is without buying the values. Well, how do you do that? The power of the Holy Spirit. Are we going to do that? We better stay connected. Because if you're down six, eight hundred feet and you decide, yeah, I don't need this oxygen, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. The Holy Spirit has given us, empowered us to live in a way we otherwise couldn't live. Would we tap into that? Would we submit to the Spirit? And yes, would we allow Him to change, as we see Jesus, to change our values that they might align with God? Well, in one sense, we've seen the power of the Spirit given to David, anointed for a task. We're going to see the other side in verse 14. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now, folks, this will get all kinds of press with the scholars, because the Lord is not evil. How can he send an evil spirit? So how do you reckon, reckon this? Here's my best shot. God gave Saul his spirit, anointed him for the task of being king. Saul kept saying to God, no, 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 no. And at some point, God said, fine, we're done. And he pulls his spirit from him. And there's a sense of foreboding. Saul realizes this isn't going to end well. What seemed to be going a good direction is going to turn and it's going to go a bad direction. So when you try and illustrate something like this, human illustrations always have limits. But let me give it a shot. Do I have any Kansas City Chief fans in the house? How about all of you? Are you guys feeling like, uh, feeling like a good year maybe? Kind of hopeful? Maybe a Super Bowl run? Now this is hypothetical because I, I don't want you to hold this against me. Today, quarterback Patrick Mahomes gets hurt. He's out for the year. Now, Chiefs fans, how do you feel about the season? It's pretty bleak, isn't it? We go from being a Super Bowl contender to, I don't know if we'll even win the division. Man, it's just one guy of 53. If that's true with a football player, how much more with the Spirit of God? God has taken his spirit. Saul has said, no, no, no. And God said, that's fine. But you won't be anointed with and, and Saul knows it's not going to go well. How bad? Verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. 
In the sovereignty of God, who do you think this person's going to be? We'll find out. Verse 18. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Armor bearer is like a junior lieutenant. David is serving Saul. I don't want us to miss what's happening here. David is anointed by God, empowered by his spirit. And you know where God has sent him? To serve someone he's rejected. Pulled back his spirit. So in the vernacular, here's what's happening. Saul's flipping out. Because he's realizing it's not going to go well. And he's brooding and he's got this thing. And so, David, you come in and you play your harp. And this will calm Saul down. Think about this for David. He's been anointed king. Saul's the sitting king. How does this play out? How does this end? I don't know. We don't know. We'll find out in the next 14 chapters. But it could be messy. What's my point? We, we talk about being Christ in our community. We talk about people being anointed, filled with God's Holy Spirit. Friends, that's not a thing of privilege. We go serve and we go love people who what? Who are rejecting God. Who don't want anything to do with them. Well that, that could get messy. Yeah it could. But we trust God. To empower us. To show us. To lead us in what to do. And in what to say. This will get rough for David. But God will lead him in. It might be uncertain. It might be uncomfortable. But our position as Christians with the Holy Spirit is not a position of privilege. We need to be stepping towards people who don't know God. There's some folks, to call them friends would be overstating it. They're acquaintances. But I work out with them three times a week or so, so I've gotten to know them. People drink. I mean, these are 30 to 50-year-olds. They talk about drinking. If half of it's true. Some of them are not practicing biblical morality. <laughs> I have a deep affection for these people. They know I'm a pastor. They, they haven't asked me what I think. So if they're not asking me, I'm, I'm not giving an opinion. I'm not going to pronounce judgment. But I'm going to ask, how are you doing? How, how are your kids? And that fiancé who you're not, you don't know when you're going to get married, but you're kind of living with. How's, how's your fiance and their kids? And I'm just loving people because I believe that's what God's called me to do. And I think he's called you to do the same thing, to step into a mess and to be Jesus. Simply love people. If they ask me my opinion, I'll give them my opinion, but they're not asking, so I'm not telling. We serious? about being Christ in our community.
then we're going to have to say God's anointing on us is not to step back and be protected, but it's to step into the mess and the uncertainty and believe God is going to use us. Verse 22 and 23. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David now stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, there's David on his harp. David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and be well. And the evil spirit would depart from him. Just know that two times as we go on, when David's playing the harp, Saul will take his spear and chuck it at him. Miss him. It'll get a little messy. But David is following God's lead. And what this is doing is it is saying, how does somebody come from a shepherd boy to be king? Well, we're in process here. And the steps are in place. David is the human ideal for a king. Without giving too much of a spoiler alert, what's going to happen between now and the end of 1 Samuel is uh, Saul's going to chase David. And David's going to show some great uh, demonstrations of faith. Twice he'll have Saul dead to rights and he won't raise his hand against it because he says, this is not my job. It's not my place to take God's anointing. But there's another time when Saul, uh, David will lie. He will deceive. And his deception will cost the life of 85 priests. We'll read about that in about five chapters. There's another time where David will say, you know what? I can't trust God anymore. I'm going to go live with the Philistines. And we'll find out that David ends up in the battle formation in which Saul dies before God pulls him out. David will become king. And he will fall into adultery and use murder to cover it up and he will take a census for his own ego and people will suffer. And what's my point? David's the best humanity has to offer. And he falls really, really, really short. There's a king who's worthy of our trust and his name is Jesus. He's the son of God who took on human flesh. Don't put your ultimate allegiance in a person. But even Jesus models submission for us. John 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, this is the Son of God who takes on human flesh. He can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. That, that really flies in the face of our Americanism, right? No, no, no one tells me. No, Jesus would, would, would buy on this idea that, uh, that our, God's values need to be our values and, and we need to be mirroring God and, and we need to let him work. One more example, John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. That's not a very American statement. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As we struggle with this idea of God shaping and molding our heart and values, I'm not sure I want that. Would we cry out to this Jesus, the Son of God, who molded submission to God, allowing God to work in our lives? That's not human, it's certainly not very American, but Jesus can get us to where we can't get ourselves. 
So how many of you watched The Lone Ranger back in the day? Any, any takers here? Okay. So I want you to fill in the blank for me on this, okay? The show's done. The rescue has happened. Justice has been served. And the Lone Ranger says, hi-yo, away. Silver, good job. Yes, Silver. Silver was the Lone Ranger's horse. I read about this. I didn't know in the first episode of the Lone Ranger, the, all the rangers were wiped out except one, the Lone Ranger. And he was hurt. And he needed to find a way back. And there was this horse in the meadow. So he went over to that horse. And he got on that horse. And you know what the horse did? Threw him off. So the Lone Ranger had to work at training Silver not to throw him off. And then he had to train Silver to giddy up when he said giddy up. And he had to try to say to stop when he said, whoa. Do you know Silver was part of some great acts? He did some amazing things. There were some rescues that he was involved with, and there was justice that he was involved with, and there was, I mean, I mean he did a lot of good. But none of that ever happens if he doesn't come in submission to the Lone Ranger. He's just like every other horse out there in the meadow doing his own thing and not doing a whole lot. What's my point? You and I can be involved in some great works and some eternal efforts, some changed lives, some changed hearts. But we've got to come into submission. And the Lord says, whoa, we've got to stop. The Lord says, yep, we've got to go. And when the Lord hops on, we can't be throwing them off. And when he says, I want to change your values. I want to make something important to you that you don't think is important. And I want to take something that you think is really important and tell you it's not worth diddly. Everyone will say, okay. Can't get there, but Jesus, you can. Spirit, you do your work. You show me, Jesus. And you work. That my values... God might become your values. Who's God looking for on his team? People's heart, whose values align with his heart and his values. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that uh, you challenge us with this account of the anointing of David. I mean, your value system is so, so different from ours. You're not looking at the outward appearance. You're looking at the heart. You're looking at where we live life, what matters to us, what are our priorities. And Jesus, all of us have got jacked up priorities. What matters to us doesn't matter to you, and what matters to you doesn't matter to us. And so we need you to do a work in our lives. Can't do it on our own. But just as you anointed David with your Holy Spirit, you have a promise to anoint us. Lord, that we take you at your word and allow you to work. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.